Scott, the top. Let's welcome Maddie. Amen. Beautiful. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we this morning? Good. Thank you very much for welcoming me into to speak this morning, but also into your church family this year. Um, so yeah, it's been a privilege to uh, attend Highlands um, as of you know at this season that I'm in the Highlands, um, in the Southern Highlands, and um, yeah, you guys have all welcomed uh, yeah, me in so well and so warmly, and there is a real sense of community and you know the, the heart of the Father in this place um, that I haven't experienced in a number of churches um, that I've had some involvement with around Australia. So yeah, thank you very much for welcoming me. And we're going to be talking about worship this morning. So thank you very much to our worship team um, for everything that you guys do. Um, worship is such a big part um, of our church here um, at, in, in, you know, at Highlands Christian. Um, but yeah, Lily was, sent me a message this week and she was like, is there any songs that you would like us to, to pick and to, to sing you know, for what you're speaking uh, on this morning? And um, I uh, said, no, that's okay, just whatever the Spirit gives you is fine, which is code for, I don't know what I'm speaking on yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but nevertheless, even when I do know what I'm speaking on, that is often you know, how I approach something like that, because I believe that as a body of Christ, and when we are united under the same head, that he's speaking the same thing to us. And just once again, it's happened time and time again, and it just blows me every time that the songs that we're singing, when given to God and two different people go to the same head as far as what they're wanting to prepare, that he speaks the same thing. So thank you very much, worship team. So just join with me um, in prayer, and then we'll uh, unpack um, yeah, what God's been speaking to my heart. Father, thank you so much um, for this morning. Thank you for um, this uh, opportunity that we have to gather together as a community, as a body of Christ, and to, to declare your praise, to worship you um, together in spirit and in truth. We thank you that we get to do this through song, through our giving, through um, the word. And so we just give this time to you, for you to be exalted, for you to be valued, for you to be worshipped uh, in Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Beautiful. So, what do you guys think of when you actually hear the word worship? The chances are that if you have grown up in church, that a number of things could come to mind. Perhaps uh, you think of a big band or the latest Hillsong album. Or maybe from your church tradition growing up, your entire services were referred to as worship services. And so you assume worship to be everything that happens in that hour and a half segment. Maybe if you are a musician, you hear the word worship and you think of some Holy Spirit pads in the background and the G, C, E minor, D chord progression with an outrageous A minor in the bridge where an octave jump the second time round is absolutely compulsory. Yes, <laughs> amen. Or perhaps you're here and you have never been to church and you think of worship as being a tribal or perhaps ancient Middle Eastern ritual where people wail and bow and pray and chant and have temples and all that kind of stuff, which honestly just weirds you out. And fair enough. The word worship in our day and in our culture can carry with it all kinds of different connotations, cultures and practices. And so when we talk about worship, it can make us feel a little awkward when we stop using it as just a buzzword and actually stop and think, oh yeah, worship. The word worship, it carries weight to it. It's not small talk. You say worship and people realize that what you're talking about has value and meaning and importance. It's no little thing. It's no just 
buzzword. It's incredibly spiritual language. I remember telling some of my non-Christian friends that a large part of what I do is to lead worship uh, in church and then also in, in my work at Cape and Ray and to coach other people in leading worship on stage. And just the look that came across their faces was just actually, it was quite funny. But it made me realize that there could be a number of things that are running through their mind as far as what, what I mean by that. What do I mean when I say lead worship? In church it's so common, but outside it has a lot of, it, it, it has got a lot of connotations, a lot of culture behind it, and people don't really know what we're talking about. And I know for myself growing up in church, I didn't really know what I was talking about either. So... That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at what biblical worship is and then discovering what it means to actually worship the God of the Bible. So the English word worship, as I'm sure some of you will know, actually comes from two words, worth-ship. So to worship is to exalt someone or value someone as worthy of your adoration. When we worship, we are ascribing worth and giving glory to something or someone in our lives. To give glory is to give weight, importance, value. The literal translation is weight. Listen to what David says in regard to worshipping God in Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Or in 1 Chronicles 16, starting in verse 23, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord, Yahweh, he made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him. All the earth. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Now, a word that continued to pop up here in both Psalms and Chronicles was the word ascribe. Again, not currently used in our culture, but it basically means to credit somebody with something if you were not sure what ascribing is. So, credit the Lord the glory due his name. Now, in church culture, perhaps it's most widely recognized that the period of time in church that we sing and connect with God in such an intimate way through songs of praise and thankfulness, declaring the glory of God and majesty of God, is worship. And that is absolutely true. Colossians 3 verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So absolutely, that is worship. And this, of course, is a beautiful expression of worship to God, something that is necessary both personally and corporately for healthy and vibrant relationship with God. But that in and of itself is not the depth of worship, not true 
worship. True worship goes much deeper and encompasses far more in our relationship to God than the 20 minutes we prescribe to singing on Sundays to, to exalt God and ascribe to Him worth and glory, weight and the value that He, he is due. See, we can all participate in our church practices and still not, in fact, be truly worshipping. This is why Jesus said to the religious leaders, the church people of his day, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, he says, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of, way, of men. In other words, there is something that you are practicing externally which is not then being exemplified in an inner heart reality before God. There is something that you are practicing externally which is not being followed up. It's not followed up by a heart posture. You're worshiping me with your lips. It's funny, the actual Greek word that he uses for worship there is actually like a mocking form. <laughs> It's actually not like real worship. It's like used in a hypocritical sense. Um, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. That's zero worship. Doesn't work. It's not real worship. God lo doesn't look at the external practice, what happens on stage or what happens corporately, but he sees past that into the inward heart attitude and posture of worship. So clearly, clearly worship must be far more than music, far more than words, far more than songs, far more than our giving. There must be some substance behind it all. One of Merriam-Webster's many dictionary definitions of worship is to honor something or someone with extravagant love and extreme submission. To honor something or someone with extravagant love and extreme submission. See, the reality is, for us as human beings, we are creatures of worship. The question is not, do you or do you not worship? The question is, who or what do you worship? Regardless of your tradition, church or unchurched, conservative or not so conservative, we all worship. We all honor something or someone with extravagant love and extreme submission, whether consciously or unconsciously. We are creatures of worship. We all worship something or someone. The question is who or what? Who or what do we value? Who or what is our highest priority? Who or what can we just not live without? Who or what do we spend our money on? Who or what do we spend our time with? Who or what do we spend our time thinking about? See, there are many examples that serve as possible answers for a lot of us that probably came through your mind. Money, status, our boyfriend or girlfriend, technology, possessions, sex, the latest fashion trends, our looks, friends, reputation, famous musicians or actors or whatever, the list goes on. There are a bunch of things that could take that place of our extravagant love and extreme submission. It's because we're creatures of worship. Now, those things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, and perhaps some of them are, but when they become the object of our worship, where we exalt them, 
where we value them, where we cherish them, treasure them, glorify them above all else, the side effects are chaotic at best for our soul and spiritual health. The reason for this is that the common thread behind all of these things is actually the worship of ourselves. The reason for this is that the common thread behind all of these things, money, status, boyfriend, girlfriend, technology, possessions, latest fashion trends, our looks, etc., 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 is that the common thread is actually ourself. A worship of ourselves. All of those things that I, traced, that I mentioned before can be traced back and find their roots in self-worship. I do what I want, when I want, however I want. I value myself and my relationships, my looks, my security, my passions, my achievements, my performance, my feelings, urges and surges of my body as incredibly important. In fact, I am my own highest priority. I will consciously or unconsciously exalt myself and I will be my own God and thereby worship myself. <laughs> we begin worshipping and serving the Gee, it's good to have him back, isn't it? <laughs> Amen. We begin worshipping and serving the creature rather than the, create, the creator. Newsflash, this is the sin nature within us. Sin is not a list of wrong behaviors, as many assume. Rather, it is actually a condition of the heart we are all born with that is postured towards a worship of the self. It's a heart posture that says, shove off God, my rules. When I was, when I was doing some work in England, this is how a religious education teacher was describing sin from yay high to yay high. Sin is not doing this, that, and the other. She would just go, sin is shove off God, my rules. And I was like, wow, I love that. Because so often we look at sin as behavior. And so if we steer away from bad behavior as best as we can, then we're not sinning. No, sin is a condition of the heart. And we all have it when we come out the womb and we're sick and we need Jesus. But more on that in a moment. So Romans 1 verse 21 to 25. Have a listen to this. Romans 1 is perhaps the most accurate commentary on our culture in the West today. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now there is a lot that could be said about this passage of scripture in an analysis of today's Western culture. But I won't be focusing on that. I am simply pointing out that the default sin nature of the heart is to be God, be Lord of our own, love, our own lives, say shove off God, my rules. And I'm diagnosing that as self-worship. Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, follow me, live for me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but yet he forfeits his soul? Or what shall man give in return for his soul? You see, by living for ourselves and worship, worshiping ourselves, we actually shuffle ourselves into a throne that was only ever intended to be inhabited by God, and consequently our lives are a mess. We seek to save our lives. We seek our own glory. We seek our own will, our own control, and our souls fall, up, fall apart. Because what does it profit a man if he tries to save his life? Because he's actually going to lose it. He's going to lose what he's looking for. He's going to forfeit his soul, his mind, will, and emotion. He's going to forfeit his emotional, and even worse, his spiritual health. Our culture in the West is infiltrated with a culture of self-worship like a search sponge. And this is exactly why it is widely recognized that my generation is the most anxious and depressed generation that the West has ever raised. Because the focus is entirely on the self. And we are the object of our own worship. Have you guys ever been in a situation uh, where you are required to fulfill a role that you are by no means qualified in. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, it ruins you, man. Um, something that a lot of people don't know about me is that I was a basketball umpire for three years. That was my first job. It sucks. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness, so many identity issues as a result of that job. I actually, I, actually have, I actually have a theory that the reason I have such a hard time in decision making is, yes, because of my temperament, but also because I was so used to having every quick responsive decision that I was making as a 14-year-old kid being absolutely scrutinized by people who were twice my age. I, like, kind of kidding, but actually not. Like, I, I do question whether there was some formation going on there. But anyway, we move on. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for our new identity in Christ. Amen. Um, so we, yeah, basketball umpire for three years. And I was 14. I'd only been refing for maybe about six months. And uh, one of the district refs doesn't rock up. And so naturally, because as I'm sure you're aware, there is a, a lot of people who are putting their hands up saying, yes, when I grow up, I want to umpire basketball. <laughs> um, so naturally, since they had so many people to choose from, which is totally not true, they had to choose me. And so they were like, you're going to have to come and ref this uh, under, under 17's district division one basketball game. And I was like, I've only been refing for six months. I'm only used to refing 10-year-olds playing mini ball with their mothers and parents coaching. And believe me, that is also terrifying. You should see Karen go off when you call the travel on, on Timmy. Far out. That is actually terrifying. But it taught me a lot in conflict resolution, and so I'm very grateful. Um, but I was not qualified to ref a district Division One basketball game with official coaches and assistant coaches and, and all this kind of going on and lots of spectators and all this kind of thing. And oh my goodness, when they asked me, <laughs> I'm getting anxiety now. Um, <laughs> yeah, my goodness, I was trembling. I was shaking the entire time because I was missing calls. I was just so, I was literally out of my league. How's that? And... Um, my goodness, it was a disaster. I, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually had the coach of one of the teams because we have a saying in umpiring, which is make sure you call the first foul. And there's actually a very big lesson behind that because if you don't call the first one, then the next 20 are very quick in succession. Because if one person fouls, then it just ex ex escalates. So you've got to make sure you call the first foul, otherwise you'll have a brawl in like five seconds on the court if it's high competition. 
Um, and so I missed one, and then I missed three, and then all of a sudden, like 20 seconds, I'm like still like thinking about, oh my goodness, I should have called that one back there. And then this guy goes for a layup, and he gets chopped. And I'm like, <laughs> whistling my mouth, and nothing comes out. And everyone's like, what? And the, 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 the coach actually squares up to me on court, 30 years old, staring down this 40, <laughs> this 14-year-old kid, and is just like, what are you doing? Why is he refing our game? I was out of my league. I was fulfilling a role that I was not qualified to fill. In the same way, bringing it back here now, when we become the object of our worship, whether our own or other people's, because we crave other people's worship too, we are filling a space intended for God and God alone. And we fall apart. When we live for ourselves, also known as exalt ourselves, glorify, adore, value, worship ourselves, and be God, it all falls apart. We lose the life we are so desperately looking for. We forfeit our emotional and spiritual health. This is exactly why the Holy Spirit, through Paul, writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15, For the love of Christ controls us. We have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That is Christ. Christ died for all. Listen, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The reason that Christ died according to this passage of Scripture was so that we would no longer need to live for ourselves and worship ourselves, but instead be controlled by the love of Christ and exalt Him and ascribe glory to Him by worshipping Him and living for Him instead of ourselves. Christ died and rose again to set me free from the tyranny of my own rule. This is the first premise in our worship. This is, this is the first premise in our true worship is to actually reinstate God as the proper object of our worship where He is the one worthy of our extravagant love and, and extreme submission. He is God. I am not. I live my life to tell His story, not my own story. I live to build His kingdom, not my own kingdom. I submit to His authority for I am not my own authority. Father, not my will, but yours alone. You are king, not me. You are Lord, not me. This is our true worship. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, perhaps the go-to commentary from the Bible on worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our spiritual worship, or some translations say true worship, reasonable worship, intelligent worship, right worship. Our spiritual worship is to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Our worship to God is to present ourselves, to lay all of ourselves on the proverbial altar and render our entire selves available to God for Him to do with our entire being and lives as He pleases. We submit to Him and His Word and His Holy Spirit in daily obedience. This is our reasonable, true, right and spiritual 
worship. This is our ultimate expression of love and devotion to the Father. This is our ultimate way of honoring God as worthy of our praise and adoration by, and bringing glory to Him. That we actually render Him as Lord of our lives and recognize that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Someone asked me one time, he was a lecturer at Cape and Ray, he's like, what rights does a dead person have? What rights does a dead person have? None. So if you are crucified with Christ, what rights do you have? Ah! Oh. <laughs> I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is living sacrifice, dying to self to pave the way for the life of Christ to reign in me by his Holy Spirit. Luke 9.23, once again, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you see now why worship is such a heavy word? Why when we say it, people go, Wow, that's not small talk. It makes us awkward. Because it actually addresses the heart of our humanity, whether we are worshipping self or worshipping Christ. Honouring ourselves, honouring Him as Lord. But what on earth motivates us to present our lives as a living sacrifice? What on earth actually motivates us to die to the self, to lay ourselves down? It's so countercultural against everything that I was ever told in school or anything like that, to not live for myself but actually live for God. Like that's a, that's a heavy thing. That's no small thing. So what on earth actually motivates us to, to take up our cross and, and be crucified with Christ where we have no rights to our lives but we actually belong to God and submit to his word and his Holy Spirit? Like, that's a heavy thing. What motivates us? The answer? The mercies of God and the love of Christ. That's what motivates us. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 For the love of Christ controls us. Paul emphasizes that our worship is a response to the mercies of God and love of Christ. Sometimes we feel as though we need to string ourselves together and muster up the praise in our hearts. But worship is a response. It is a response to the mercies of God and the love of Christ. What are the mercies of God? Well, Romans is writing this in Romans, uh, sorry, Paul is writing this in Romans 12. The mercies of God is everything that he's been outlining in one, chapters 1 to 11. So if you'd all like to turn to chapter 1, no, I'm kidding. Um, but basically, it's what Paul's been underlying about God's undeserved gifts of eternal love, grace, Holy Spirit, peace, eternal joy, saving faith, comfort, strength, wisdom, 
hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, security, eternal life, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, freedom, intercession, and much, much more. These are the mercies of God, and they are all found in the person of Christ, because Christ is what Christ offers. Chris Collins, the executive creative director of the Worship Development Program at Austin Stone Community Church, writes this about biblical worship. He says, Biblical worship is the full life response, head, heart, and hands, to who God is and what he has done. The mercies of God and the love of Christ. Who God is and what he has done. Because you see, when we truly understand the nature of God, that he is a good father who gives good gifts to his children, that he provides for our every need, that he offers protection to his followers, that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and we understand the riches of what Christ has done for us through the work on the cross, we cannot help but offer our bodies as living sacrifices, honoring God with extravagant love and extreme submission through daily obedience. This is our worship, our expression of love to the Father. When you realize the true nature and character of God and you grasp in your heart his resounding love, you cannot help but worship him and ascribe him the glory to his name through song and through our entire lives. If you're struggling to worship, the answer is not lift your hands and warm up your diaphragm and belt it. The answer is go to the mercies of God and the love of Christ. Go back to Christ to the root of our worship, to the root of who that is. And as you encounter him, and as you kneel before him, and you recognize just the splendor of who he is, just in his character, and then in the implications of what that means for his love for you, he woos your heart and wraps your heart in devotion to him, and all of a sudden you will find yourself with your hands out and your diaphragm belting. But it's not backwards. You've got to go to Christ. Because worship is a response to the mercies of God and his love. Worship is thus just not an activity. It is a heart posture that in humility actually recognizes God as God in our lives. As gracious and compassionate. And thus honors God with extravagant love and extreme submission to his word and his Holy Spirit. This is the heart of worship that exemplifies itself in a lifestyle. Not just in singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, as wonderful as they are. Love them. But it's deeper than that. There's substance to that. There's a reason why that happens here at church. Because we value something much more and his name is Jesus. In the words of Jimmy Needham, you can sing all you want to and still get it wrong. Oh, worship is more than a song. Clear the stage, make some space for the one who deserves it. It's a lifestyle where he is cherished, valued, treasured, exalted, and glorified above ourselves and above all things. It's a heart posture that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a heart posture that truly counts everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord. It's what motivates us to worship. Do you know what else motivates us to worship? 
the fact that we were created for this. The fact that relationship with God where he is God and we are not and he is our father and we are the child and he is Lord and we live in submission to him and his authority. What motivates us is that that's actually where we find our rest. For as that ancient Christian philosopher once said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. This is where we find our peace even our humanity, because remember when God created man in his own image, man was not yet separated spiritually from God. So the very essence of our humanity is to have God as God in our hearts. So this is where we, this is where we become truly human. Not in worshipping ourselves, but in worshipping God. Put that in your evangelical smoke pipe and smoke it. <laughs> I had a lecturer at Capenbrae Hall that always said that whenever he, uh, when he ever, oh my goodness, whenever he said something and you know, that just came. Thank you, Spirit. Ah. So funny. Rob Whitaker from Yorkshire in England. Absolutely, yeah, fantastic. Really, yeah, really good. But he would say that. And welcome to the flipping club. That's another thing he would say. If you feel like you're the only one who doesn't deserve life, Welcome to the flipping club. But that's why we have Jesus. Anyway. <laughs> where are we? Relationship with God is where we find our rest, our peace, even our humanity. Our life. He is the only one who can fill us up, who can satisfy the aching and longing of our soul that is craving for authority and craving a father and craving a God that is not ourselves. He is the only one that can satisfy our restless souls. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger again. I am the living water. Whoever drinks of me not shall never feel thirsty again, but will never thirst again. Because it's like Hungry Jack's used to be. There's free refills. Once again, Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life and live for themselves will actually lose the life that they're looking for. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, right, true, reasonable, intelligent worship. Amen. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the first character description we get of God in Exodus 34. That's your nature. You're not vindictive. You're not, uh, you're not harsh. You're not cruel. You're not unloving. When you reveal yourself, this is who you are. And sometimes that hurts because we don't like to, sub we don't like to lay ourselves down. And to submit to you has radical implications for how we live our lives. And it, and it actually could mean actually changing the way that we live. And it actually could mean you know, laying aside 
dreams and hopes and, and things like that because you're calling us to something greater and that is relationship with you that satisfies. But Lord, we thank you that we can trust you. Just as worship is worth-ship, you, pr- you say you are trustworthy. We can trust you with the plan that you have for our lives. We can trust you with our everything. And so, Father, may we, be, may we honor you in an ultimate expression of extravagant love and extreme submission by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Because what else can we do when we encounter Christ? And so, Father, we just, Lord, I just pray for this community that, that your love would be so apparent, that your character, that, your, that the mercies of God and the love of Christ would be so undeniable just in their heart, just right now in the space and as they go into the rest of the week the rest of their lives that you would woo them woo them to yourself that you would would take the veil off of their hearts eyes and they can see your worthiness that you are worthy of our worship that you are worthy of living sacrifice of laying ourselves down because you're the one who deserves it you are worthy of it all Lord in Jesus name Amen Thank you.